Our second reading this afternoon is from uh, Romans chapter 15, the first 16 verses. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice O Gentiles with his people and again praise the Lord all you Gentiles and let all the peoples extol him and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offerings of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. God, thank you so much for um, the chance that we get to be a community and open up living words from you and learn together. And we pray that your spirit might instruct us right now. Everybody here, whether they uh, believe in you, whether they're new to this, speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. I've mentioned before that in American culture we have this, um, I don't know if it's an irony or what you would call it, but on the one hand we've got freedom and individualism, parts of American culture. On the other hand we have increasing laws and regulations. And it's because uh, there's no way in our minds to figure out, well, how do we regulate the freedoms? How do we keep both? And the ver there's a version of that that happens in the church. It's been happening in the church for a long time. And that is there are, there's something called Christian freedom. This is freedom with respect to things that are disputable. You know, you've got the things that God forbids and the things that God commands, but then you've got a whole other you know, bunch of stuff. Like when you're going to have a church service, Sunday morning or 5 o'clock? Are you going to have communion every week? Or are you going to have it once a month? Are you going to serve it in shot glasses? Are you going to serve it in those really small things where you hardly get anything to drink? There's my bias. Uh, but the point is, <laughs> my point is, is this, that we've always had these areas. They happened with the early church. In the early church, there were things like, should you continue, do you have to, can you to continue to observe the holy days of the Old Testament or the dietary laws of the Old Testament that Moses prescribed? Or 
are we free from those things? In the Roman church, in the early church, those were the issues. And Paul said that you had two groups of folks, and this is kind of hard because he says weak and strong, and maybe you think of weak and you think of someone that uh, is really unsure and unsteady, but it's actually the opposite. The weak, in this case, were the ones that said, no, you need to fall in line with me. On the disputable things, they had very firm opinion and said, no, this, you got to do this. The strong were those that understood, no, there's freedom here. We don't have to do it because of God's grace and because of Christ. Both of them, I said last week, have their own temptations. The temptation of the weak is to condemn those that are using their freedoms. And the temptation of the strong is to look down on the weak and go, you just can't handle the freedom. And it may also be the temptation of the strong is they get a little too close to the fire. You know, they're unwilling to say, I, you know, I really am not strong enough to watch this film or go to this club or hang out with these people. I'm just not. And so Paul is sitting there working with that same tension, right? And, and we're in the same place. What do we do? Do we just say, everybody do their freedom? Or do we start saying, no, we're going to have a church that has more and more laws and regulations? Well, thankfully, there is something in the gospel, in the Christian gospel, that does solve this issue. And you don't find it in the world. You find it in the gospel because it's only empowered and made possible through Christ. And it's this idea that what regulates freedom is love. What regulates freedom is my willing desire to please you what regulates freedom is my desire for the oneness of the community over my own personal desire. And that's where Paul is now trying to turn the discussion in this community of the Romans. And we see that in verse 5 and 6. Unity. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony. That's the unity word. In accordance with Christ Jesus, that together, unity word, you may with one voice, unity word, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified. If our musicians next week decided that they were going to come and just do their own thing, you know, uh, Cheryl was going to play in whatever key she wanted to, Cecil was going to play whatever time signature she wanted, Leo was going to decide to play whatever group, uh, groove he wanted to do, worship would be impossible, right? I mean, if you're going to have a song, you've got to be able to play together. And so Paul is trying to get God's people to learn to play together. Can we do that? Can we make music together that's so attractive that the world would go, you know, maybe our only options aren't increasing individualism and increasing loss. Maybe there's something else. And maybe the question I begin to ask myself is not, am I free to indulge in this activity? But how does that affect my brother and sister? And so that's where we'll look at through two lens, uh, the mandate and the means. Okay, let's do that. First of all, the mandate or the why of unity. Um, now, in the Romans church, the weak and the strong in this particular instance also was a cultural issue because it turned out that the weak were actually Jewish believers. Those were the ones that were holding on to the laws of Moses, and the Gentiles were the ones that didn't feel obligated to do that. So you had this division on top of the division that was happening culturally. And I would say you see a similar thing as well. But you can imagine these two groups, both with their arms crossed, judging the other, not budging, gossiping about one another, tensions rising. 
And that's not a hard thing to imagine because we have it as well. You know, communities that are basically split by my rights than your rights, uh, my choice, my freedom. How do you break the stalemate? Paul provides the most powerful illustration we could possibly have to break the stalemate. And that is God himself laid down his freedom that he might be one with us. That the Son of God himself laid down his very life that he might be one with us and that his church might be one. And he reminds both sides of this. He reminds the weak or the Jewish believers. Verse 8, Christ became a servant to you. Now you know Christ is a title. That's Messiah. He's saying that the Messiah, the root of Jesse, the greater King David, the Messiah, the one that made the starry host, the one that shook Mount Sinai, the one that appeared in the cloud, in the fire, the one that lives in immortal, unapproachable light, the one whom Moses couldn't see without dying. If he saw him, he would die. That this one came in the person of flesh and blood, and he came to serve you. This is what he says to the Jewish believers. It must have been mind-blowing for them. How did he do that? Well, he did it by coming into their people group. The folks that we most easily identify with are those that are of our culture and race and background. And so God enters their people group that they might have an immediate connection. He comes. He comes in, you know, as, an, as a Middle Eastern, a man of color. He comes into their midst. He lives there for 33 years. He goes to synagogue. He lives in their culture, loves in their culture. And he ministers to the house of Israel first and foremost. What does he say? I came to Israel first. This is how he served. But also, why did he do it? To confirm all the incredible promises that God had given a long time ago. He came so that they would know that when God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. When he said the same to Jacob and Isaac, when he said these things, that he would do them, that he would keep his promises. The book of Hebrews says that every promise is yes in Christ. Jesus was one big yes, that God was keeping everything that he had promised the people of God, even though they had forfeited it through their disobedience. And then he says to the Gentiles, I want you to see that God's goal has always been to include you. He includes these three different Old Testament uh, quotes, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, rejoice, O Gentiles, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that God's inclusion of the nation wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't, you know, yes, the people of Israel had rejected the Messiah for the most part, but it wasn't like God said, oh, what's my plan B? I guess I'll go to the nations. God never has a plan B. Never has a plan B in your life either, right? We don't say, what's your plan B? We say, well, I wonder what the next plan A is going to be. And so God with Israel, he's saying to the Gentiles, I always was after you. I always was coming to be with you. But I want you to remember this. In Ephesians 2, I want you to remember that you were as far away as far can be. That you were without hope and without God in the world that you didn't know anything about the promises of grace. Some of you can relate to that. I know I can. Or I, I look back and I go, I knew nothing. I was just bent on being Glenn. 
I was bent on doing what I wanted to do. And he says to the Gentiles, in both, to both groups, that Christ has shed his blood to draw near those that are far away, those that are near, those that are weak, those that are strong. Listen to this, and listen to how it, it parallels what Paul says about unity and joy and peace in the Roman church. This is out of Ephesians. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, abolishing all those laws and commandments, all these things that you and I would even make into laws and commandments, all those preferences that we say, you need to follow me, you need to follow that. He abolishes that, the dividing wall of hostility. Why? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Christ has come to kill the hostility that we have in this body. You know, the, the anger, the struggle that we have. This is what he has done. And so Paul is saying, listen, if God the Father gave away his precious son to go through torture and suffering, you know, if he lost his son, if God went through that, and if the son willingly came and he gave up his glory and he gave up his renown, we are so concerned that people know who we are and who we know and what we've done, and no one knew that about Jesus. He gives that up. And the Spirit of God gives up his communion with the Son of God when Jesus is being crucified on the cross and all goes dark. He's saying, if God has done that, could you not give up this freedom, this preference you have for the sake of your brother and sister? This thing that you hold on to so deeply, can you not do that? Martin Luther, and I included this quote in your um, front page, he says this, the Christian man is the most free Lord of all, subject to none. Then he says, and the Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. You see that? Christ, you know, elevates us from the traditions of men that I am a Lord, you know, I am a Lord of men. Doesn't mean I don't have to obey the law. We talked about that in Romans 13. But rather, I don't have to be bound by these traditions of things. But at the same time, Christ has made me a servant to all that I would desire to give up my freedoms and my privileges that I might serve you. So the decision matrix changes. Now when you got, we're talking about, you know, these issues that I mentioned last week, the issues that people of God will get in a tizzy about, right? You know, should that person dress that way? Should they educate their kids that way? Should they vote that way? Should they see that sort of film? Should they listen to that sort of music? The list goes on and on and on. The decision matrix is no longer my preference. It's Christ and his laying down his life to foster unity. That becomes the question that I ask. My desire becomes to please people. I did a little search on the phrase uh, pleasing people. In every reference that came up was negative, right? People-pleasing. And the Bible doesn't, you know, uh, encourage people-pleasing. People-pleasing is fear. Everything that's not from faith is sin, right? You can go to Ephesians 6 where Paul even says to servants, I don't want you to do your job out of people-pleasing. Get it. But is it possible we swung too far the other way? 
It's really a foreign concept, this idea of pleasing someone. I want to please you for your own good. You know, I want you to feel honored. I want to bring a smile to your face. And so, for, for example, we, we begin to ask different questions like, you know, I know I have the right right now to make my opinion known and to knock someone down, shoot something off on Facebook, or, or argue my point in a community group, or whatever it be. I, I know I have the right to do that, but I don't think it would be good for the body right now. I already, think, I already feel like things are ramped up. I already feel like things are really tense. You know, I hear people sort of bugging off of Facebook, but it's more out of disgust. You know, it's more out of frustration. It's sort of this idea of, I went off Facebook for two months because I'm so tired of all you people. Right. <laughs> Instead of, you know, I need to get off Facebook because, you know, I really, forgive me. I've been a, a divider and annoyance, and you guys don't need to hear me anymore, probably for about a year or two. And so we begin to ask ourselves that question. Uh, Steve Harvey, you know, who's hosts many things, uh, television shows, the kids show, the new kids show, Steve Harvey, Family Feud, right? Uh, really a funny guy, but he, I was reading an article on him recently, and he was talking about marriage compromise. And he said, okay, I hate musicals. My, life, my wife loves musicals, so we go to musicals. Why? And he grabs the old phrase, do I want to be right or do I want to be married, right? <laughs> And I think there's something there, right? Do I want to be right or do I want to be in the church? Do I want to be right or do I want to be in community? Now, don't get me wrong. There's a, a way. I know there is a way. You know, if you're a, typically a doormat, you never assert yourself or you've been raised in a home where you weren't allowed to share your opinion, maybe for you, you need to speak up. But for others of us, right, maybe we need to say, what's the temperature right now? Should I speak? For kids. You know, maybe uh, in your house it works this way. It did when my kids were younger. We'd say, it's your night to pick the movie. And maybe you realize if you pick that movie or show, your brothers and sisters are just not going to want to be there. So instead you say, I'm going to let someone else pick so we can all be together. We're adults, right? You know you have the right and the freedom on your weekend to go out with a group and hang out, but you know you've got this friend who's not comfortable doing that or they just really want to stay in, and you go, you know, I'm going to give up my freedom for the sake of unity. Connection. Small ways and big ways, this works out. Or majority culture, right? And listen, when I talk about majority culture, we could be in many different cultures, and there's different majority cultures. In this culture, it's white culture. But majority culture, you know, wherever and whoever, uh, you know, if you've got the numbers and you've got the power and you've got the money, it's very easy to go, well, when we plan this event or we do this thing, let's just do it for the comfortability and the taste of the majority. But what a gospel thing to go, no, let's actually think about the minority and let's seek to honor them. That's a gospel thing. That's what Jesus did. So I want to ask you this question. Can you think of a recent time where you laid down a freedom to please another person? Do you think a, a recent time where you've laid down a freedom and a preference you've had, but is for the sake of unity? Because if we're Christians, we should be able to say that. But let's move on to the last point here, um, which is how. Now, Paul was a realist. He knew that if you have Jewish Christians, that their entire lives they have been dedicated and devoted to this law, laws of Moses. 
I mean, for generations, he knew that for some of them, they're just not going to be able to give it up. So it's important that we understand what he's not saying. Paul is not commanding those to give up their freedom, but only be truly willing to give up your freedom. Paul is not commanding, nor would I be in Paul's name or Christ's name, to say you must give up your freedom, only would you be willing to give it up. But the second and more, I think, striking point is we're not being called to agree on all the disputable matters. But rather, what we're being called to do is to see that they're secondary. You catch the difference? We're not being called to agree on all these disputable matters. We never will. But rather, what we're called to do is to agree that they're secondary issues. They're non-essential issues. And that, my friends, is the starting point for unity. That's the back door. When two people could sit down and go, you know something? Can you agree that this is not essential? This is not like the Apostles' Creed. This is not like uh, the deity of Christ. This is not like, you know, the person trinity of God. This is not like the gospel of grace. This is about, like, what films you like to watch. This is about, like, right, we can go on. And that's where the rub is, between the essential and the non-essential. Now, many of you are familiar with this quote, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. And oftentimes it's uh, attributed to Augustine, but it actually wasn't Augustine who said that. It was a German theologian, Rupertus Mendenius. Old Rupertus said that. <laughs> For years, you know, when you get up to heaven, you're going to say, hey man, I heard that you said that. He's going to go, you're right, I said it. Augustine got all the credit. Maybe not. He probably wouldn't be in heaven if he was that upset about it. But, um, but he said that during the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s. And if you know that, it was the most, historians will say this, uh, the longest, most destructive conflict in Europe, as well as the most deadly. There were eight million people that died. And you know how it started? conflict between Protestants and Catholics. I imagine disagreement about disputable matters. Some probably that were disputable, but look where it led. A sign of maturing is this idea, like if, if and some of our personalities give this way, and you know, if we were in a different passage, those of you that are sort of like harmony, unity people, where you're always looking for that. Maybe you need to hear the bold words of Jesus. Is, you know, you need to stand up and make a decision. You need to be hated for what you believe in. But there are going to be those of you that tend to be more black and white. That's just how God has made you. That's a good thing to have. But you need to ask yourself, am I able to sort of do the gradation? You know, like say, this is the principle up here. And then, you know, here's the application. When I draw out the application, so for instance, you know, let's take up... Uh, any biblical principle, give me one. Tithing. Thank. Well, let's do a different one than tithing. Um, no, tithing. That was really good. Tithing. Right. Oh, it's a perfect one. It's a perfect one. You know, here's tithing. God has commanded his people to be generous and give. But he has not commanded them to follow the Old Testament laws. So if, if Mike were to stand up there, I'm going to put this on you since you're the offering. If Mike were to stand up here, you know, and say, listen... God's called us to tithe, and he's called you to give 15%, and he's called you to give this much, and he's called you to give this peace offering, this and that, right? That's not going to work. 
because there's not a distinction in application. But application, basically what I'm saying is the level of importance should be going down like this, the further it gets away from the principle. So I'll pick another one, right? The, the issue of, yeah, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to keep your kids from, you're supposed to raise them in a godly way. What does that mean? It can mean a lot of different things, can it? Raise your kid in a godly way. Then one person says, so therefore they should only go to rated G movies. You're not up here, you're down there. All of us have to have that idea. Maybe it'd be a good exercise. Take some of your deepest convictions, whether it's about who you vote for, who you work for, your issues, put the biblical principle up there and ask yourself, are there other ways that you could fulfill this not in the way that I would typically do? So, what does God give us to help with that? Two things to close out here. First of all, he gives us his word. He gives us his word where you and I can lay our convictions on top of this book and see, you know, do they shake out? <laughs> do they become part of the print or do they shake out? And so as soon as Paul mentions Christ not pleasing, he turns to Scripture. Look at that. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. They needed hope, and he's saying the way the hope is going to come, and maybe you're like this, I feel this way, you know, whenever I read the paper, I hear about all the division, whether it's in the country or the church, I just start to lose hope. You become cynical. That's what happens in Washington. People come here to change the world, then they become the city of cynics. And so he says, do you want hope? It comes through the Scripture. And 2 Timothy says it this way, all scripture is breathed out by God, it's inspired, it's from him, it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That means that God means to help us figure out this non-essential stuff from the essential stuff. But we ain't going to figure it out if basically what I'm going off is the culture and my own opinion. It's, not gonna, it's only going to happen with a group of people that are in the Word. I've seen this happen so many times in beautiful ways. I remember one time when I was in a Presbytery meeting. This was years ago. And uh, unfortunately, there was a minister that knowingly took a vow he shouldn't have taken, and he kind of did it so he could kind of get in a position. And we discovered that. And we got into this debate where people were like, well, it would be unbiblical for him to renege his vow because the Bible says this. And then this minister, I didn't even know his name, just stood up and he said, <clears throat> well, there's this Old Testament example of uh, this guy that made a foolish vow, said he would sacrifice his daughter, who I would sacrifice whatever came through the door to the Lord, turned out to be his daughter. And he wasn't supposed to keep that vow. He should have, you know, rescinded it. It was like, ah, light came into the room. A non-essential, essential thing happened. And Paul says it's not just the parts of Scripture I like, all of Scripture. In fact, he quotes from the three categories of the Old Testament here. The law, the writings, and the prophets, when he quotes about the Gentiles. And he goes on to say that Christ came as a servant of Israel to confirm the truthfulness of God. In our Old Testament reading, you, you heard you know, this passage out of Isaiah where Christ is called the root of Jesse. He's called the one that is, you know, comes from, this is his lineage. But if you were following that, you saw that he would be wise and his wisdom would lead to the lion lying down with the lamb. Unity. That the Messiah would come with a sort of wisdom that creates unity with his people. And the Spirit enlightens us to do it. I love this verse where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. 
He's saying, listen, I know that God's given you a spirit. He's given you a word. And you're going to figure this out. You can do it. He's going to give you wisdom about what's essential and non-essential. He'll do it for you too. He promises to be faithful to his people. When there's disunity among Christians on secondary things, what it betrays is a people that don't know the Bible. What it, know, what it betrays is a people that are not immersed in the Scripture and how to weigh things. This was the critique of the religious leaders, right? You, you parcel out like the offerings of this is how much mint you should give and this is how much dill you should give and this is how much, but you, you know nothing of justice and mercy. And so, here's a, a standard for us to look at. And I'm using James here. James says, wisdom from heaven. Wisdom, what does it look like? Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, impartial, and sincere. So I'd love for all of us, take a conviction that you feel strongly about and that you hold to and it gets you really mad when people go, take that conviction and ask yourself, do I hold it in this kind of wisdom? Is my conviction marked by peace and reasonableness and mercy? This is how the people of God should stand out from the culture. This is one of the witnesses we ought to give. But at the heart of that word is the word of Christ and his grace. Paul puts the words of Psalm 69 in the mouth of Jesus. And this is the final point. The second thing he gives us, he gives us his word, he gives us his grace. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That welcome language is basically Paul saying, live like a people who have been justified by grace and not by your own works. Live, by, live as a people that know that you were so far from God in his understanding, but he came and sought you out when you, didn't, you were fighting the wrong fight on the wrong side in the wrong way. That he was the one that came. When you and I get to heaven, I, we will find that we were wrong on not a few things. You know, I, I, I've, some of you have heard me say this before, a little conversation I had with Meg. I love it. I, I repeat it all the time where I, I said, uh, you know, I, I try hard every week to get this right, to, to study the Word and get it right, but I'll probably get up to heaven and the Lord will say, Glenn, about 75%. And Meg said to me, you think it'll be that high? You know? <laughs> So the point is this. I'm not trying to take away your confidence. I trust that when I preach the word by the Spirit, you guys are feeling God. You're getting Him. Right? But we're all jars of clay. And in heaven, when we get there, we'll find that we're wrong about not a few things. You know, we'll find when we got to heaven, oh, it's filled with people from a different political party than I had. Uh, I don't think we'll be wearing T-shirts from our different denominations in heaven. Right? I think we might be surprised as well that uh, the best seats weren't given to the people with the best theology. Or maybe we'll get up to uh, heaven and we'll find that our worship playlist was not the same one that God had going. You know, it wasn't just, you know, uh, maybe, maybe he didn't even have Hillsong on his playlist, right? Maybe, maybe he didn't own a, tr uh, a Trinity hymnal. No, now I'm, now I'm really, you know, I'm being foolish. I'm being foolish. We'll also find, I think, when we get up there, that kids have arrived safely from all sorts of parenting styles, right? Ancient Roman parenting, modern American parenting, kids that slept in the bed with their parents, kids that slept in the other room in a crib, 
right? Kids that breastfed, kids that were on a bottle all their lives, that's me, you know? Uh, so all, now some of you are going, I, that's why. <laughs> kids that were raised in a public school, a private school, home school. And you might find chiefly that that sports franchise and that coach that you hate so much really wasn't incarnate evil, right? <laughs> There's going to be all these things where we get up and go, you know, I was wrong, but God is loving you in this moment. He's accepting you in this moment because he accepts you by grace. The gospel teaches us that you and I are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believed and more accepted and loved than we ever dared hoped at this moment. That the Son of God died the death I should have died and lived the life I should have lived. And there's nothing that can revoke me away from the favor of God, the standing of God, because he did it all. So as I'm scrapping and messing up and getting mad and saying, these people, you know, he's being patient with me. And if I'm humble, he'll even instruct me. I'm not saying the truth is relative. What I'm saying is truth is loving. I was uh, reading an article uh, yesterday on James B. Donovan. And some of you, anybody of you see Bridge of Spies, that movie? A couple people, all right. I mentioned it before. It, it, this guy was really a remarkable guy. He is the guy, uh, Tom Hanks plays him in the film, but he was just a lawyer. I think he may have been an insurance lawyer, I don't know. But he gets called in by the government to negotiate prisoner release, right? And, uh, I mean, he, he uh, is a Gary Powers in the 1950s. He goes over to Russia, and basically he facilitates this, and he does it in such a remarkable, skillful way the government can't get anywhere. But what I didn't realize is he was even more effective with the late Fidel Castro. He went over there many times. After the Bay of Pigs, there were 1,000 people, prisoners held. There were 9,000 people, in, uh, women, children, and men in detention camps. Over his visits, all those people got released. And the way he did it was so extraordinary. You know, he came in and, and he would just uh, listen. He would, uh, one, one time he brought his son on the trip with him because he knew that that would humanize him and it would please Ca Castro and they spent the whole day fishing. You know, he wanted to uh, buy him a wetsuit as a gift. And when uh, I think the CIA found about it, they said they wanted to poison the wetsuit so that when he got into it, he would die. And he, and he subverted that, he said no. So while the government is thinking, we're going to nail this guy, this guy is sitting, you know, reasoning with him, negotiating with him. And when he died, his daughter wrote this. He felt that a person simply wants to be respectively heard. And that is only when you listen well that you can reach the most just results. History taught him that, and we could stand to use this weapon today. The weapon of respect the weapon of listening, the weapon of being reasonable. We need that weapon today. We need it in the body of Christ. We need it in the city. We need it in the city of Washington. We need it in the culture. We need people that can live out chapter 14 and 15 and begin to make a difference. Let's pray that God will help us to do it. Lord, we thank you for the light of your word. Please help us to live it in a way that's pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen.